Hello and welcome to The Librarian is In, the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. I am Frank. And I am Crystal. <laughs> welcome, everybody. And I am still reading Anna Karenina, and we'll be <laughs> probably through the next episode. I'm going to finish it then. For it's the next a- two years, you'll be reading Anna Karenina. <laughs> I know, it's not that long, but uh, I'm. it's tied to the book discussion I'm attending about it, and it meets every couple of weeks, just like we do the podcast. And um, uh, we gave a lot of time to read the different, there's eight books in Anna Karenina. So we're, the next round is the final two, book seven and eight. So that's why the next time uh, will be when I finish finish it off. So, but I was I was feeling like, oh, people are like, Anna Karenina, I don't want to hear it anymore. So it was because I'm so preoccupied reading it. I also read an article that interested me in The New Yorker and of course, it then completely related to Anna Karenina, which I would sort of <laughs> love to get your opinions on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like to read little nonfiction and stuff, especially with shorter form, um, so I can focus on the other book I'm reading, Anna Karenina. What were you going to say? Well, How is the book discussion going? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a small group. It's We're doing it in person. Small elite group, yes. Small I wasn't invited. Group. That's fine. No. <laughs> uh, now you know. Um, so it's, you know, uh, it's being led by a colleague of mine, actually, who I met in my peregrinations around the system. Now that I'm still sort of branch library free, I haven't really returned to Jefferson Market. Um, and I was more than happy to take up her challenge on reading Anna Karenina. So I did. And the discussions are good. It gets you, gives you a chance to think about and work out, you know, what's going on. Even though I, it's there's so much in this book. I mean, I, I don't even remember what I've talked about or if I've even told the story to a degree. And then I was like obsessed with this one part. I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about it. And then I was like, I think I already talked about this. Scene. <laughs> so but it, we'll see. <laughs> but. That's what's interesting about your uh, book discussion secret club or whatever, this idea that it's happening over such a long period of time. Yeah. Which allows you to change your mind on things as the story progresses. And I find that to be kind of interesting and in how the conversations develop from one meeting to the next, right? Um, all, all that to say, I have total FOMO. <laughs> oh. Don't. <laughs> I mean, I was going to read it, but still. <laughs> oh, my God. I should have. Well, you couldn't have. Uh, I like to be asked so I can say no to things. See? <gasps> you know, it's funny you should say what you just said, because I felt a sense of guilt because this colleague was very insistent on it, trying to do it in person rather than doing it online. She's so much mm. younger. Than she was like, I'm over the online thing. And. I admired her a lot for that. And I, and I was like, well, you know, we worked together. So I was like, I'll do it. And I was, and we're doing it at new Amsterdam library, which is far way farther downtown um, from Jefferson market. And I was so tempted to 
how our thought about inviting my book discussion people from Jefferson Market that I've met online, you know, over the last two years, not so much lately, because I'm also just wanting to meet in person. Um, but I didn't because I was like, oh, they're not going to want to come down to a different branch. And I wasn't sure of the logistics. And I was even a little bit like, are we even going to really have online? Because it's it's been like a month. So it was mm -hmm. whatever we were allowed to do in person. Um, I didn't know if it would work out. So I just, I was all kerflumpled about it. And I <laughs> I just didn't do it. I didn't reach out to any of my, my people at all. I just let this colleague of mine lead the way. So I didn't even think of inviting people or I did think of it, but I just, I think I just decided this was like an exploratory thing. I was surprised how odd I felt about it. And I was, because I'm usually like break the rules <laughs> and not really. I was more nervous about doing something in person than this colleague of mine was. She was like, it's time I'm doing it. And so I think I was just sort of taking a submissive, position and letting her lead the way. Mm -hmm. So that was a long-winded way of saying, please don't hate me for not inviting you. No, I could never. I mean, I'm just teasing you. Well, as I love to do. Uh, I'm so easy sometimes. Um, so there you go. And that actually, you know, clonks right into like language <laughs> deficient. Um, well, you said to me before about changing your one's mind as you read it over a long period mm -hmm. of time. You're doing two books, two sections of Anacarna every three weeks, so there's a lot of time. But the core of the book, too, as I said, I know I've said in other sessions of this podcast, is that the characters themselves change their mind all the time. And mm -hmm. I just because I'm trying to figure out why it's considered the greatest book of all time in some ways, <laughs> and I think it's very much um, <clears throat> that it's so true to life and that people really do think themselves through, but then they change and are not consistent morally or not consistent philosophically. And it feels very true to life. So you recognize that sort of inner turmoil that we all have. Um, outwardly, we might be more, seem more consistent, but inwardly we're not. And um, so you can't really pin your hero hopes on any particular character. Like people do shift and sometimes they do things that we want, might think are not so wonderful. And other times they do such a wonderful thing. Um, but speaking of, of um, me not inviting you to the book group and feeling <laughs> stuff, I read an article in the New Yorker on, on the subject of shame. Oh, interesting. Which, yeah, which has always been a word that I never quite understood. Like it always mm -hmm. seems to be a collection of other emotions rather than just one monolithic thing, which of course makes sense. Um, and the article was really uh, called Why Shaming Has Become a National Pastime. And of mm -hmm. course it has mostly to do with the online revolution, like social media revolution where a lot of this occurs. Shaming and which is really more, this article is really more about shaming, which I think is a fairly newly, you know, newly worded um, phenomena in a way, because we usually talk about shame and I could, and there is an aspect of that that I can relate to Anna Karenina for sure. But it's even the word shaming, I wonder if that was even used like 20 years ago. 
you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, shaming, the concept certainly exists because, you know, shame, all right, like in terms of definition, let's say, mm-hmm. this article says too, it's like actually here, let me just read it. it who's it by? Because I know that there's oh. that book, I think, was it called You've Been Publicly Shamed by John something or another? Oh, that's interesting because they the article does mention two books recently written on the subject of shame. That, that's not oh, one. John Ronson. I've I read that. Um, it was a book of essays, possibly. Oh, so you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson, but it's not written by him. No, the article okay. the books that the author of the article, Becca Rothfield, Rothfield okay. um, brings up are How to Do Things with Emotions and another book called The Shame Machine. Okay. So I guess a lot of books on shame are being written these days. Um, all right, so she defines shame in the article. Shame is the sinking sentiment that attends deviation from widely endorsed mores, whatever they happen to be. You can be sad or elated for any reason or for no reason, but shame requires a shared social context. So the person feeling shame feels it in relation to the society in which he or she or they live or the culture they live or that what they their head tells them the culture says. And I guess shaming is the outside external forces, the culture, society, whatever, actively seeking to shame an individual. So I guess we're it seems like, at least for my lifetime, where I was more used to thinking about in terms of shame as it as from the individual's point of view, but now we talk about shame from a shaming from the external forces point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think that's solely because of the rise of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is what this article and those the books mentioned in it are about. Um, I mean, ultimately, it seems like the books are exhorting um, an individual to break the shame cycle and not mm-hmm. actually engage in that cycle. They bring up a lot of classic examples of one of them, I don't know if you remember or heard of it, but it was from 2013, and the article says something like, you know, back in the day when we still had hopes for the um, the healing effects of the internet and that the word cancellation was a fate reserved for poorly rated TV shows. There was this woman who wrote an email, a, a Twitter um, comment on her Twitter feed. She had like 100 and something followers about going to Africa. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. See, we all know, and she it's, it was terrible. She wrote, hope I, off to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Mm-hmm. And then she got on the plane, and 11 hours later when she landed, she'd lost her job. She, she was all over Twitter. It blew up. And there were millions or lots of comments shaming her about that tweet. Mm-hmm. So she starts with that, and then the article starts with that and moves on there. And then also mentions, obviously, situations like the Harvey Weinstein situation, where his public shaming turned to to good as a revelation of his bad behavior. Um, Not to say that her shaming was bad or good. I mean, the the article does say a little bit that this woman who went to Africa, who who tweeted this tweet, actually was not was involved in progressive causes and was a was often going to Africa and it could have been read as like Mm -hmm. ironic statement on white supremacy I I mean you could analyze it so many different ways the context sometimes doesn't matter online because it moves so quickly and it does seem like an immediately like horrible thing to say 
right? Um, but then the point, the other point of the article is that in real life, IRL, <laughs> um, if we were face to face with this woman and she said something like that, let's say, mm -hmm. um, she, the article says that we we wouldn't necessarily want her to be worldwide humiliated and lose mm -hmm. her job if we were face to face. I think there, the article is making a point about in real life we'd be like, well, that was a terrible thing you just said or did, um, mm -hmm. yourself. Um, most of us wouldn't just say, I want your job gone. I want you to be shamed internationally, but it's, a, so I guess the article saying it's a lot easier online and that makes sense. It's just a bigger universe. It's a global universe. I mean, mm -hmm. anyone who has a social media platform automatically has technically a worldwide audience, mm -hmm. you know, whether it, reaches them or not is another story. So just before I get into Anna Karina, what do you what are your thoughts on sharing? I mean, it's interesting because I'm trying to think about it in conjunction with I think maybe more historical versions of shame because I do think that there has been shame historically and it's done in often like very like violent ways, right? Where like, if you're a thief, you're branded or um, even in the book, The Scarlet Letter, right? That kind of shame, whether or not it was like justified or um, what was the other example that I had? Oh, like the women was at post-war, um, they were, their heads were yeah. shaved for sleeping with Germans, so supposedly, um, you know, uh, being in contact with German soldiers or whatever, and how that kind of like violence is perpetrated and how they are held up as people to be shamed in these different kinds of ways, often very violent ways, right? Um, but I do think there is something about uh, shaming in this contemporary forum of like social media where, as you said, like very like minor things that in person like maybe we have just like flown by, you know, or, or is contextualized in different ways are kind of frozen. And then they take on this like huge, like the, the reaction to it maybe sometimes feels much, much larger than what the actual thing is. Right. right. So I think there are still similarities to historical shaming, um, but it is interesting to think about with this added, um, I don't know, intervention of like the internets and how, how it is like transformed and changed and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, like you just pointed out examples. Well, I guess you, you pointed out examples of shaming that were unfair or, or today we would look at as unfair, mm -hmm. you know, why shave the heads of these women who supposedly fraternized with the enemy? Mm -hmm. um, but even more so like, you know, you know, not so long ago, you know, different groups like gay people, like, um, people of color, it could be shamed mm -hmm. for who they are being in the wrong place or, mm -hmm. or, uh, um, uh, too vociferously pronouncing your identity. Let's put it mm -hmm. that way. Um, could, and the, the culture around them was approving of it like it was a cultural thing where you could be shamed for that like even the act of coming out yeah actually is like full of shame for a lot of people because it's like i'm sorry i'm not what you want me to be i'm sorry i'm not what the world wants me to be um and certainly a lot of that has changed so like the shame landscape does change 
Which brings me to the question, like, why do we shame people? Like, why do we feel the need? And we all do it, I think, in some way, even if it's just like a passive aggressive comment to someone. Mm -hmm. And it almost feels like just off the top of my head, which is not much left up there, um, <laughs> is oh, go ahead. Um, we, it's what was I gonna say? Oh, it, we almost can't let as humans a slight go by because we feel maybe we feel um, anxious or afraid, and I tend to think a lot of human behavior behavior is motivated by fear um, that we're afraid. Um, unchecked behavior that seems really wrong mm-hmm. will do some real damage to to people and you could say do that to be more formal do damage to the culture in which one lives so you know however many years ago there a, the culture could have easily said like oh you're gay you can't Mm-hmm. And throw it around because it's sort of disruptive and alarming to a lot of people. You can't do that. It, mm-hmm. it sort of upsets the balance. Like in the classic thing of like, well, do your thing, but just don't make a big deal of it. Mm-hmm. And now it's definitely different where it's like, this is my identity and this is who I am. And, and I want to be accepted. and I demand it even. Um, but the impulse to shame, like, like in Anna Karenina, it's like Anna has an, is married, has an affair with Vronsky. Um, well, she, all right. So right away, everybody knows like, all right, this book's written in the 1870s. She's going to be shamed by society for having an affair. And we know that he'll be shamed less because he's the guy. Mm -hmm. Maybe not shamed at all. So why, why does the culture, for example, why does a culture, um, shame, let's say specifically a woman or seek to shame a woman for having an affair when she's married. Does that maybe seem disruptive of the cultural norms, which is what the definition was? I guess it does. Mm -hmm. Why would someone else care? Like, why would Mm -hmm. we want to weigh in? And that brings to the online thing. Like, why would the woman who made that tweet, why would so many people feel the need to weigh in? Answer that question. Oh, right. (laughs) I mean, like, hearing you talk about it, I make that distinction too about the the shaming of people who have like marginalized identities in, in different kinds of ways um, does make me think about the use of shame as like punching down and punching up, right? Exactly. And like where the power dynamics are. And maybe with Anna Karina, and maybe based on like the book that I've read and, and other things I've been reading recently, I, it makes me think about like an internalized oppression in some ways too. Like why is a woman shamed and also shamed by other women too, uh-huh. like within the society, right? Where you're reaffirming um, and saying that the values of the society where this woman is lower than this man or is less valuable than this, this man is, is uh, held up, you know, rather than being broken down. Right. Um, and it also makes me think about, too, the access to power that maybe people do get through social media where, um, sure, in, in cases where people are shamed and undeservedly so, but then there are also people, like you said, like Harvey Weinstein, uh, where 
sometimes people have no recourse because the person is so powerful that the only thing that maybe they can do is try to shame them, right? Um, And that has then, I think, led to other consequences that I think are good for society. Um, And so I do, like, question the the role of power in it, too, for sure. You actually, yeah, you talked about, actually, with the article talked about, about punching up and punching down. That's a great point. And you reminded me of something like, well, this will be on later, but like the this the Will Smith slap of Chris Rock at the Oscars. Oh. Right? Everybody knows about that, I guess, right? Yeah. And what's interesting about that is, and it relates directly to online, is that, and the article talks about this too, is that there are so many platforms for a point of view mm-hmm. that you can find obviously we know this, your own preference affirm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you think, you know, Chris Rock was a dum-dum for saying what he said about Will Smith's wife because she has an autoimmune disorder, mm-hmm. or you could say Will Smith's a dum-dum for having the nerve to, to hit somebody physically, mm-hmm. especially in, in that kind of, plat- that kind of uh, venue, uh, you can find like I looked on Reddit and on different tweets and there were some people mm-hmm. taking sides and they were both sides mm-hmm. and find your side and live there. That is a phenomenon that didn't really exist before the internet because you would have gatekeepers of information. Mm-hmm. You'd have a select amount of letters to the editor published in them that showed different opinions, but the volume would not be anywhere near it, it is now. So you could have, you'd have, hopefully trusted journalists writing an opinion piece mm-hmm. and then you talk to your friends about it but it wouldn't be public we wouldn't all of us have a platform so in a way the Weinstein thing was early um, and that seems to accelerate in the right way but it almost seems harder now but even then there were different differing opinions and then there were all the collateral issues like people like Oprah Winfrey or, or people we love who were who fraternized with Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Didn't she know? Didn't they know? Like, how, you know, then it got bigger and bigger and anything touched by him showed you as complicit if you didn't say something then. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like it never really can end. And the article basically sums up this whole concept. is like, there is no off button anymore. We mm-hmm. can't. One of the books says, you know, like, get offline, stop engaging in that behavior. And the author of the article was just like, I don't think that's possible. There is no IRL. It's just, there is no off button. We're on. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works. Um, but still, it doesn't answer the question why we are motivated to do it anyway. That's what I was trying to think. I think it's just like, it's an anxiety and an uneasiness when someone breaks the rules. And it might even be, um, for better or worse, it might even be, and it's also very much contingent on the rules of the day. Like I said, you know, different social groups have evolved to more accepted, shall we say, places mm-hmm. in society where it wasn't the case. Um, and that was an unfair thing, we would say now. But um, why we're motivated to even do it, like a woman having an affair uh, on her, you know, a married woman having an affair, does it make us uneasy? Like, well, does it almost even make us jealous? Like, you broke the rules, you're going to pay for it. I wish I could, but I'm not, I don't have enough guts. Or is it, it's just like, you know, like I personally would, would, would think myself through it and not cast shame on this person because it's none of my business. Mm-hmm. 
But then other people would be like, it's absolutely unacceptable. And you'd want to think, I'd want to figure out why. And I don't even know those people would think they would know why. They would just be like, well, this is wrong. She's married. She made vows. I mean, I don't know. Well, it's their life. I, I, I do wonder if there's this like weird biological element to it where I, I feel like we have this desire to categorize things into like very easy slots. And sometimes it's really hard to sit with the complications and like nuances of a question, like something like this, where you just want an easy yes or no, this is morally wrong, ethically wrong, et cetera. But I don't think a lot of these kinds of questions are um, realistically that easy, especially as you start to get like more context of what's happening. And I think people sort of reject that um, complexity. And I do feel a little bit like social media, um, you know, uh, really incentivizes you to go for the one line headline, right? Like sort of the easy, that's, that's the thing that gives you like the, the, the dopamine hit. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't necessarily take the time to sit with those kinds of questions. And um, maybe it's like a rejection of that, of that complexity and nuance and people just want the easy answer because it, al- it alarms us too like you know yeah complexity is alarming and it also invites feeling a lot of feelings about oneself that you might not want to feel your own complicity your own bias mm-hmm. and that's yeah. like yeah, we talk about it all the time about like investigate your own bias mm-hmm. and you know that's a that's a tough thing for people to do like that's what in this article some of the authors of the books discuss will uh, say it starts with the individual, and then the author of the article is like, well, how many of us are really going to do that? And then also, the interesting part about sh- the shame in the world as it is today, and, and the media as it is today, social and otherwise, is like, you need a shared context in order to feel shame. And then the whole divisive nature of politics is like, you know, one side could say, oh my God, like January 6th was shameful. And then the other side could say, no, it wasn't <laughs> legitimate, whatever, you know, insurrection or let's not even get into that. But like, like left and right, you know, could both mm-hmm. say, I'm not feeling shame. You should feel shame. So that's not a shared context. So there's, there's no shared context. I mean, there's no like a shared media really or dominant media form anymore that can set the tone for us. And certainly when I was younger, that was a, a problem. It was like, and I've talked about this before about, oh, the ivory tower of the media, you know, dictate a few people dictating what all of us have to think. And now that it's been democratized, so it's all by the, by the internet, it's like, well, be careful what you wish for. I sort of long for the day of like, you know, really struggling, aspirational, respected individuals who can make commentary that we could all look to and then discuss amongst ourselves, but not in such a public way because they get, it's like one opinion is too few, but a million is maybe too many. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess people just ignore the other silo and stay in their own mm-hmm. and then I, preach to the converted. I don't know. I do want to read like a, a Twitter <laughs> response to mm-hmm. the the Will Smith slap, which I feel like was maybe the the best take on it. And I and I the reason why I think it's the best take is that um, the person Amanda Paris just kind of puts out four statements, and it's not really like a, a judgment. You know, it's just like these are things that are true. And the four statements that um, they write is assault is wrong, 
Alopecia is a painful experience that many Black women go through and should not be joked about. The concept of being the protector can be a form of toxic masculinity, and Black women are rarely protected and deserve to be protected. And I kind of appreciated that response where it was not like, Will Smith is right, uh, Chris Rock is right, blah, blah, blah. But it's just sort of like, these are all truths that we all kind of have to grapple with in this situation. Um, And so I I, uh, thought that was well put. Well, Crystal, you're wonderful. That's true, because that's, that is a great um, tweet you just read, because it doesn't say right or wrong. It says, here's how complex it is. And how here, like we just said here, how complex everything is, if we think about it. And then it begs the other question, like, why do we have to go right to who's right, who's wrong? Like, why that binary? Like, you know, why, oh, Chris Rock is wrong and Will Smith is right. And like, and then fight about it. It's like, it was a human experience because I, I mean, I thought a lot about like when he hit him, I was just like, people get hit all the time, unfortunately. It's not exactly a non-human reaction. Mm-hmm. So it's like to treat it like it's this crazy aberration. It's mm-hmm. not correct either. You know, she, that woman, you just, Amanda Paris? Amanda Paris. He displayed a formidable thought process, I think, that said, okay, here's the seemingly contradictory sides to everything. And then here it is without judgment. And then why, why can't we leave it at that? That's the, goes back to the question of why shame at all? Because then suddenly when I said that, why can't we leave it at that? It, I actually felt a moment of anxiety. Well, well, behavior has to be punished. Like we can't, if, if we let people hit each other in public, it'll just go out of control. Like some comedians have said, you know, oh great. Now it's open season on live comedians. Mm-hmm. Who's the next person who's going to be a Will Smith and come up and hit me? Um, which is fear. So mm-hmm. maybe it is fear. It's like fear of the breakdown of the structure we, we want to trust. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we can even handle the complexity. I think we could. People like Amanda, mm-hmm. as you just read, um, once you, think, once you th- think that pop of anxiety through that I just had, you realize it's okay to, to let those facts sit there and not exactly seek punishment or shame either one of the parties involved, right? Mm-hmm. That was a good one. So with Anna Karenina, I'll just sum it up by saying, actually I had, I had a whole bunch of scenarios to talk about shame, but. What would, the, what would Twitter say about Anna Karenina? Actually, what would Anna Karenina say if she had Twitter? Oh, okay. Because, well, there was, well, I was thinking about that because there was that one scene I know I've talked about where she's, she's given birth to her lover's child and both her husband and lover, Bronski, are at her bedside and she thinks mm-hmm. she's dying because she, She's had that experience and um, how the shame situation shifts that at first Vronsky is looking at the husband and saying like, why don't you challenge me to a duel? Why don't you make a situation of this? You're, you're not acting like a real man. You're not behaving with the way we should, we should, you should as a, as a wronged husband. And so he feels very sort of angry and superior. And then in that scene, um, Alexi, her, the husband has a revelation of like forgiveness and he suddenly feels this bliss of figure forgiveness and he says so and then suddenly Vronsky is shamed by like oh he just took the dominant position in this trio the husband by taking that stance and Vronsky what does he do he goes home and basically shoots himself mm-hmm. because he's he needs an act that will cleanse the feeling of shame he doesn't he hurts himself pretty badly but he doesn't die and once he's recovered, he realizes, oh, I don't feel less than the husband anymore because I just basically performed 
an extreme act to um, elevate elevate myself out of that shame, which is crazy. <laughs> and it says a lot about the society's views on what being a man is, um, and also how we do. I think that's a good example of how we do, even in everyday life, seek to to maintain our position. And maybe that's also what's at the core of it, is not just maintaining society, but maintaining our position in the structure. And if we don't believe in the structure, we've lost our own power. Mm-hmm. And we want power. Um, mm-hmm. The final thing I'll say is that Anna Karenina, which about the shame issue, as at least where I am now, um, two books to the end, two sections to the end, like more than three quarters of the way through, mm-hmm. has not really felt shame. She's felt very joyous and happy in her affair. Very mm-hmm. conflicted and jealous and emotional, but not shame. And there's one which I think is going to change. I think the, the culture around her is going to close in on her and she's going to feel it. It'd be interesting to see. But um, one scene particularly is that she has the sort of cojones to, to go to this opera or something into the theater, and which is a very uh, predictable, which is a very familiar scenario for moments, especially in period pieces where people go to a public space like an opera or something and then there's a situation like the audience you know so she goes to this opera and is com- completely um mortified by the reaction to her there mm-hmm. that so when she steps out of her bubble of love with her lover and realizes that there is a society at work around her that doesn't necessarily approve it, and she's the sort of core brunt of it, right? Mm-hmm. But it, what Tolstoy says about Anna is not she felt shame to her core. It says she felt offended. She said that she, if, and it's almost its own paragraph, she felt offended to her soul. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave it there because I think that's so interesting that he says she's offended rather than shamed, and which makes me say is that she's resisting and disapproving and does not accept this cultural moray around her. Whether she can articulate that or not, like she, if someone said, well, why are you offended? She would be like, well, she might not be able to say, mm-hmm. but, and Tolstoy does not say, she says, but she is offended by that because she believes in her love more than anything else, and that shouldn't be wrong. There you go. So I'll, next time I'll wrap up Anna Karenina and move on to other pastures of love and laughter. And then you'll move on to like Ulysses or another oh 800 plus page book, right? Oh my God. No, no, I'll switch gears to something. The, the more you talk about Anna Karenina, the more like I am, well, you know, <laughs> seeming like I'm getting to know her a little bit, but I appreciate like that idea of being offended and feeling like you are in a place of rights, right? And, and I think in some ways she is, I mean, maybe not so much the love thing, which I'm like, okay, right. But the the fact that like, you know, she's being treated very unfairly because her husband, if he had an affair, would not be treated in the same way and, and feeling that kind of like moral outrage, mm-hmm. I imagine in that situation, I think is really fair and maybe is a reclamation of power possibly. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we don't know how it goes, but we'll, we'll get there. Spoiler. We get- Oh, I will alert. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to see how how the progression happens. Um, should I talk about my book? Yeah, of course, darling. Okay. It's not always all about me. Well, it's mostly. I say like three fourths. 
I'll, I'll take the word for it at the end. After my uh, long, long life. But uh, the book I did was The Violin Conspiracy. And I actually wrote the hardcover, which was good. Um, but I usually do read ebooks, and I, I really felt the struggle because before this recording, I was trying to find a particular quote and I've just given up because I'm like, I can't find it. Like, Whereas usually in the ebook, I can just search for like phrases. Oh, God. Uh, it's called a bookmark, a post it. I know, I should have. I didn't have any post it notes at home when I was reading it. And I, I brought the post it's here because I was like, I'm going to find this quote. Whatever, it's fine. Well, dig into your soul and try sometimes, to I just want to put out there that sometimes technology is superior. So that's all. But in this book, this came out this year pretty recently. It's The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum. And it is a thriller set in the classical music world, which I, I, I like kind of love that intersection. And um, the scary thing in this book is racism, basically, is my interpretation of it. So it follows a Black violinist named Raekwon or Ray. McMillan. And in the story, essentially, you, you it starts off with him with his Stradivarius violin that's worth like $10 million, right? That is stolen. And when he opens the violin case, the violin's missing. Instead, there's a white Converse sneaker and a ransom note that's like, you need to deposit $5 million in this, uh, in Bitcoin, <laughs> in this account by this date. Um, in order to get your violin back. And of course, he needs it back because he is playing in the, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. I might need your help with this. Uh, Tchaikovsky competition. Tchaikovsky. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Oh. And Moscow. <laughs> oh, okay. So he, he needs it back before that competition to in order to like play and play the way he needs to because he's very attached to his violin. And then through a series of flashbacks, you kind of like learn more about the like five years prior, four years, three years, two years until it gets back to present day. And then the kind of thriller like runs its course. Um, but essentially like uh, it starts with in, in his history when he was young, he was given a broken fiddle by his grandmother that was owned by his deceased grandfather. Uh, at a certain point, he discovers that it is this $10 million, like really a fancy violin. This kind of hits the news, right? And when it hits the news, all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodwork wanting a piece of that violin, including his own family. So his own family includes his mother and his, I think, two uncles and two aunts who all of a sudden, like, object to him. They're like, well, this is $10 million violin. It was really meant to be left to us when when your grandmother passed away, right? And they all want their cut. And the other interesting thing that happens is that there's this other family. Uh, it's, a, it's a white family called the Marks. And they are now claiming that this violin um, was stolen from their family, their family who enslaved Ray's great, great, great grandfather, and that the violin was stolen, not given, right? And so this is also playing out at the same time. And for Ray, what he, all, but like all he really wants is just to play the violin. He doesn't want to sell it. He, he like feels a real connection with it. And I think that's one of the shining moments in this book is raise a connection to the violin and to music and how that kind of like really leads him to places, right? Um, I think it's a really realistic look at the classical music world. The author, um, Brendan Slocum, uh, I think he, 
he has a degree, I'm looking at the, the author note um, or the author bio, he has a degree in music education in violin and viola, and he has like taught for 20 years um, in schools for kindergarten through 12th grades. Um, so he's done a lot, and I think he, you can see that knowledge in the way he talks about the music and talks about the classical world. Um, I was going to briefly compare it to my like very short stint in band, but I was like, that's the, not really a fair comparison. <laughs> but based on that very short experience, I'm, I, I appreciate like how he talks about the dedication that in, it involves and also the money that it involves. Like for you to be at a certain point, like I think it requires a lot of like um, time investment and monetary investment. And he kind of emphasizes that too when he is, the character is, um, helping out this like music festival and there's a young black student who um, comes in and has like a terrible instrument, right? That, you know, is not doing him any favors. And of course, like other things happen where Ray like is trying to mentor the student, but then is accused of favoritism and all this other stuff. Um, the other thing I really like about this book is that I think it emphasizes a lot the importance of mentorship, right? So for Ray, that meant there was one particular uh, professor at the university that he attended um, who really supports him throughout his journey, um, Janice or Dr. Stevens. And, and I appreciate that because I think that's a reminder in a lot of different fields where people may work or, or um, play in where like if you are really underrepresented, it, it it really does help when you have somebody mentoring you through the process, right? Otherwise you are really kind of um, separated and alone. And yeah, you know. Well, back to me. Um, <laughs> no, actually what you made me realize is that, well, it sounds like it's very back to me, but I, over my long career, like I've always felt like libraries had such a strong role in supporting artists and arts. You know, it's not so general, but like I've just thought about over the last 20 years, but like, you know, giving people venues, you know, doing art classes where you can actually provide the supplies, things like that, like it's really supporting that, that mode of expression, especially like people who are not often heard. And students, I love students. You know, the neighboring colleges and stuff like anyway. <laughs> I'm a showstopper. Um it just made me think about libraries when you talked about supporting and mentorship. And I think we have a strong role in that, actually, or can. What was the quote you wanted to find? Can you try to dig it out of your So well, this is kind of some of the the things in the book that I felt like I kind of grappled with a little bit because I, this is a debut work. I think it is really kind of like great as a debut work. It's really interesting. I've, I've never seen a book that kind of has taken this take on like the thriller, right? Science this classical music world. And I think it's done well, but there are different aspects of it that I like wonder about in, in some ways. Um, the quote I was trying to find was his grandmother would constantly tell like the young Ray um, you, whatever happens to you in life, you always need to be respectful of others to always be that sweet boy to, to never change that. Right. And he goes through a lot of hardship with, you know, his family, um, kind of like wanting the money, uh, this other like 
white family that had enslaved his family in the past, like wanting to take this thing that he cares about so much away from him. And of course, there's also the question of like reparations and things like that that comes up as well. Um, but I think there are aspects of it where he does break out of that a little bit, the idea of like having to always be respectful. But like the question to me is when you're treated so horribly, there are two terrible police encounters that he has, right? Um, I really question the idea of like being respectful and having to be sweet when um, people are treating you in a dehumanizing way, right? And so I, I, I feel like that's a, what his grandmother says. It's a very real thing that is said in a lot of different kinds of communities, right? But um, I think as a message, I don't like love it. And I think he, he, he does push against it a little bit. Um, and I also think that the other challenging thing about this book is that I feel like a lot of people will see themselves reflected in it, but others will find it challenging because so much of the identity that is presented is really shaped by the white gaze, right? And so that's something that is, um, I think can be like really triggering. Certainly it was like, felt like really enraging to me at certain points when I was reading about his experience. Um, and so there are challenging aspects of this book. I don't know if this is a book for like everyone, but I, I think as a debut book, they, this debut thriller set in this classical music world, it is well done. But there are those questions that I still kind of have with it. And I think kind of maybe require like more conversation. Yeah. Wow. I know. So that was with the quote, oh, I see about being always respectful and kind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for me, I wondered if it lent a little bit too much into respectability politics, right? Um, which, again, is a very real thing that happens in minority communities, right? Um, so it's like an accurate reflection of, of things that are said, but I just like didn't love it. But, you know. I know. Always respectful either. Like, I think he he really does challenge some of like that. I think there was a a, a police encounter or um, other things. I should call it encounter. It was just like straight up racism. But yeah. um, that he does like push back against. And when when he is wronged in certain ways, I think he does push back against at the end. Um, and then I will say the, the ending. I, I did guess what was happening three-fourths of the way through, which... Uh -huh is not a slight against it because I feel like that should be like typical of these thrillers, right? Like towards the end, you start to get the answers because that's how they, they function. If it was a complete surprise, that would be terrible. Like I have a friend who when we watch movies, she'll guess the killer like five minutes before it's announced. And oh. she's like super pleased for herself. And I'm like, I don't think that counts because I think the movie was leading you to that answer. And I've done that too. But um, I, so I, I think, I yeah. Know. What? I never get them. I never can figure out who the killer is. Almost never. It doesn't count if you say the killer and then a character names the killer two minutes later. That's all I'm saying. Too close to the revelation. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, we, wait, you were going somewhere else about it, I think. Oh, I totally forgot. Um, <laughs> My memory is, is that terrible. Um, oh, you said you, the, you figured it out through three quarters of the way through, and that's not a diss to the book. That it's oh, yeah, pretty yeah. much being led in that direction. And it seems like the book's yeah. about a lot of other things than just a straight-up thriller, that's for sure. I think there's a lot that talks about, like, family, um, sh certainly mentorship, uh, the role of, of Black women in his life, too, right? 
Um, I, oh, I was going to say like the, this is maybe a, a mm, pet peeve maybe. I don't know. It did wrap up a little too like nicely. And there was at the very end, uh, I feel like the ending could have been improved. Like it, it, it wraps up in a sort of tidy way in like a couple of pages. And then there was an epilogue. And the epilogue I'm I'm still kind of questioning because there was almost, I want to say like a magical realism element or certainly like a spiritual element that happened where I was like, I didn't know that the book was like setting that up, but maybe it did. Um, so I questioned that, but it did still reiterate I guess the idea of mentorship or maybe not mentorship but the idea of um supporting like the younger people in the community too you know and I think that kind of goes back to maybe the author's own experience of teaching which I think is really wonderful and I think it's really relevant to like what we do in the library and all that kind of stuff but you know it's a it's a interesting and fun book and I, I recommend it do you think it's cataloged in mystery in the library or I think so right Okay. It's a conspiracy. Look, it says violent conspiracy. That's got to be mystery thriller, right? What is that? Oh, is that Good Morning America? What is the sticker on it? Oh, it's um, Good the Morning. Good Morning America Book Club, oh. um, which, is a, which is a knock against it in my book, but whatever. Throw down. Throw. <laughs> I read it. I read it despite the sticker that said Good Morning America Book okay. Club. Well, there goes our endorsements. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Oh, it has an endorsement for Misty Copeland's oh. and Alexander McCall Smith. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's pretty lavish. Mm-hmm. Do you want to pull a tarot card and see what your future is worth related to big? Yes. Since you just sort of do you have oh, one? Christy go- has one. I think maybe our future is gonna be like we're both gonna be publicly shamed for this episode. <laughs> what it is. <laughs> I think I don't know. So let the producer pull a card for us to tell her our fates. What do we say this is? This is this is a sort of comment on our future for today or for what? For today. Let's do today. That against Good Morning America. Uh, so your future future against Good Morning America and getting on here. I don't want to start like some vendetta or rivalry with Good Morning America. They're very powerful, I'm sure. All right. Last time I asked Frank to pick Crystal. This okay. is my left my left hand. So tell pick me the eighth one from the right. Ready? And I say that because the violin looks like the figure eight. So it's all oh, connected. It's all a conspiracy. Um, all right. <laughs> And if it's upside down or not. It is the right side up page of pentacles. Page so, of page, pentacles? Yeah. Page of pentacles. P-A-G-E? Mm-hmm. Page. We're all Googling this. I was going to say, yeah, I think we're all on Biddy Tarot. <laughs> no, don't you have your booklet or no? I use, I use Biddy Tarot. Uh, so upright is manifestation, financial opportunity, and skill development. And here, this is, the, uh, this is the card. So the page is a per like a person. Yeah, like a like a actual page. Like a library page. Like a library. Yeah. So what does it mean? Financial what? Skill development, financial, yeah, manifestation and financial opportunity. Do you have it up in front of you, Crystal? Do you want to read it? Oh. Upright. No, but you said manifestation. Manifest. Um, I can't talk this morning. Manifestations, financial opportunities, skill so, development. Okay, so um 
Page of Pentacles brings a welcome message of new beginnings, inspiration in the initial stages of a creative project or venture. Since Pentacles rule the material realm and correspond to the element of Earth, this page symbolizes a burgeoning awareness of the value of money, wealth, possessions, career, physical health, and how to manifest more of these material blessings. Um, when the Page of Pentacles appears in a tarot reading, you are tapping into your ability to manifest a personal goal or dream and maybe in the midst of a new project, such as a hobby, business venture, or the start of a new educational experience. Oh. Um, but the page does not specify the fulfillment of dreams as much as the initial motivation and energy to begin the process. Oh. You need to put in place clear plans for achieving your goals and dreams. Well, so it's not like we're going to make a million dollars today. Okay. Now that that's out of the way, it's actually pretty true. Like, Mm -hmm. That's pretty much like life. It's the journey, not always the destination. I mean, I, I will say this feels really relevant to my life because <laughs> in the past week, I've really been trying to get in front of somebody from Google to make a pitch about Google Docs and how it can be more functional for my work. Oh, no. What? Actually, also <laughs> what reminded me is that in Anna Karenina, and I... <laughs> And I, because everything is, goes back to Anna Karenina, it's the only novel that need exist, apparently. Um, there was a part where Tolstoy or the narrator, which I haven't even talked with the narratorial voice, but the narrator says that often quoted before him and since him, um, why do people think if they achieve their desires, they'll be happy? Mm -hmm. You know, that, 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 that thing where someone's like, oh, if I only just get this, I'll be so happy and then of course they never are fully mm -hmm. but, um it's it's the sort of like chrissy just said like that sort of um motivation to start seeking to start seeking maybe seeking is happiness mm -hmm. not necessarily fruition anyway uh, we, the the later paragraph i think also relates to the violin conspiracy where it says <laughs> <laughs> this page does not uh, specify the fulfillment of dreams as much as the initial motivation and energy to begin right. the process of turning right. those dreams to reality. You need to put in place clear plans for achieving your dreams and goals. Stay focused on the practical and tangible elements, Keep keeping your feet planted on the ground and not getting carried away. Always looking for the next realistic and achievable step forward. Your common sense and pragmatic approach will lead you to a solution that works. And I'm like, that is the book that I just read. <laughs> Or I read two weeks ago. Right, but, yeah. you can plan and be very conscientious. Doesn't mean it's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, all that you just said sounds reasonable, but like the, the actual execution of that is so difficult. You know, like how we actually put in realistic plans. Like, what's realistic? What do you trust? I mean, I think about that all the time about planning stuff for the library, and I'm like, whenever I think, oh, well, I can't do that because it's not realistic. I'm like, well, why isn't it realistic? And then mm -hmm. I think, I think, well, maybe you could make that happen. So it is a process. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that card, actually. Hmm. Yeah, it's inspiring. Page of Pentacles. I'm going to call the library page right here saying, hey, Page of Pentacles, come on over here. <laughs> oh, I mean, wow. The pages do have names, Frank. Page of Pentacles. <laughs> so that new library position, can you imagine? Posted. Seeking Page <laughs> of Pentacles for the New Amsterdam brand. Yeah, I'm at the I'm yet yet another library today. Um, since I'm, oh, I already said that. Uh, <laughs> okay, anything more to add, darling? Before we sign off and skedaddle. 
No, are we reading the same? You're still reading Anna Karenina for the next one. So I, I, yeah, you one. gotta okay. bear with me. The next time um, I will have finished it, so I will sum it up, wrap it up, throw mm -hmm. it up, <laughs> and be done with it. Oh, that was weird. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. And then we could go back to reading stuff together or reading a book together or whatever, or have a guest, mm -hmm. some guests coming up, library mm -hmm. people, NYPL mm -hmm. library people only right now. Mm -hmm. um, right? Such an elite club. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's fun to talk about people in our own institution that we don't even know what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big institution, so it's good to know about that. Yeah, also, we have when we're going to record in person, hopefully soon. When COVID is destroyed, I know. that's when. TBD, get the second booster. Oh, okay. Are you going to get it? I think so at some point. We'll see. Day by day. Day by day. You know that song? Day by day. God. No. Oh, dear Lord. Three. Didn't the actress from West Side Story win an Oscar? Yes. Were you pleased by that? I thought Ariana, of you when I saw it. Ariana DeBose. And it's interesting because Rita Moreno, 60 years ago, won the same award for the mm -hmm. same part. I think somebody had said that the only two Latina actresses yeah. performing Oscars are those two for the same part in the same thing. Ariana DeBose who played Anita and won the Academy Award, you know, can pretty much do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, she can really sing, dance, act. She's hilarious. I mean, she, vehicles need to be created for this woman. Yeah. She just, she has everything. She really. Be. Yeah. With the Oscar, I feel like that really leads to a lot of different yeah. opportunities. Did you so. like your speech? I did. I didn't listen to it. I didn't watch it. I didn't know anything was happening, honestly, until somebody was like, oh, somebody slapped whoever, and I kept, I thought it was staged. I thought it was a skit. I don't know. I didn't uh, know what was happening, any of it. So The Oscars. I used to watch, like, very religiously. You, you know what? In the past, I used to make a, a solid effort to watch all the Best Picture nominees. Um, and this year, I don't think I saw any of them, and purely by accident. I don't know. It's just been busy. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so much out there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we could go on and often do. <laughs> but I think we should release the listeners from their podcastial purgatory. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we'll see you the next time on or hear you or be around you the next time the library is in. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.